Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today, my guest is Dr. Scott Scher. Dr. Scher is a board-certified internal medicine physician, certified to practice health optimization medicine, also known as HOME. Dr. Scher is also a specialist in hyperbaric oxygen therapy, as well as the COO of Transcriptions, a smarter, not harder company. Dr. Scher's clinical telepractice includes HOME as its foundation, alongside an integrative approach to hyperbarics that includes cutting-edge and dynamic hyperbaric protocols, comprehensive testing using the HOME framework, targeted supplementation, personal practices, synergistic technologies, new ancient psychedelics, and more. I have known Scott for a number of years. He's not only my doctor, but also a mentor. And a lot of the things that I'm interested in today became interesting to me because I learned them from Scott. In particular, I learned a lot about my own issues with my gut biome. And thanks to Scott, I live a stronger and healthier life today. We discuss a variety of topics that are very relevant to your day-to-day life. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And now, Dr. Scott Share. Welcome to Three Thoughts On. I'm delighted to be here with my friend, Dr. Scott Share. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm great. It's great to be here, man. Thank you for coming. I know you're a busy man, so I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, Could you give us, uh, the audience, a little bit of a brief intro on who you are, what you do? Sure. That's always a difficult one to answer in the sense of what I do. But in general, what I do is I optimize health rather than treat disease for the most part. Um, And I look at that from both a disease focus and also a preventative optimization focus. So uh, long story short is I'm certified to practice something called health optimization medicine and practice. It is a framework that was developed by a colleague and friend of mine. His name is Dr. Ted Achacoso. He's also a mentor as well. And it's a framework that looks at health from a, uh, looks at disease and looks at health from a health lens. You know, in general, what we're doing in life is being more reactive to things that happen as opposed to being responsive and preventative. And we're not talking about just prevention that you get at your regular doctor's office, but true prevention, true foundational health. And that part of my practice is integrated with uh, my focus otherwise, which you know very well, Raphael, is hyperbaric oxygen therapy and how I integrate a foundational approach, this health optimization medicine and practice approach, or home hope for short, along with hyperbaric oxygen therapy in my clinical practice that I do it, uh, that I do uh, via telemedicine across the U.S., across the world. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So let's start from the beginning there, because you, you, t- you said a number of different things that I think are very key for everyday life in this day and age, but that, you know, we're being bombarded with information. There's Dr. Google, right? And Dr. Google knows everything. Everybody thinks that that today... You know, back in my day, the word research meant that you actually have to publish stuff. Today, people call Googling research, which is far from far from it. So when you talk about optimizing health um, and and you talked about also prevention and true prevention. Sure. Can you expand on that a little bit for the audience? Sure. 
yeah, now it's going to be Dr. AI, I guess, right? As uh, yeah. Google is no longer as cool as Dr. AI that beats you on medical tests or law tests or any other test at this point. So, but AI is certainly coming uh, and interesting in all this world. We could talk about that later or another time. But I think what you said is really important is that most of us have this opinion about what is health prevention. And that's typically going to your doctor, getting your blood pressure checked, making sure you don't have prediabetes, making sure that you don't have insulin resistance, the same thing, making sure that you know, you're getting your bone density tested or getting your colonoscopies. And all that is absolutely the case. But the thing is that health really starts at the basic level, which is your cells. And your cells are with you from when you're born to when you die. I mean, they certainly change over and they're, they're certainly recycling themselves over the time. But what we don't have really in medicine is a way to look at foundational markers of cellular health, of cellular metabolism, um, of gut metabolism. And these are all interrelated. Um, obviously, your gut is, is its own sort of ecosystem with microorganisms. You have your body, which is an ecosystem of cells with a nucleus, um, cytoplasm, and something called the mitochondria, which are the powerhouse of your cells. And so in medical school, we learn that all these things exist, but you don't really learn how you can actually keep them healthy. You learn to how to work with them when they're not doing well, when they're causing disease. But what about keeping them healthy? And so there really is a standard of care for, for most diseases. There's a standard, standard of care for diabetes, for hypertension, uh, for multiple different diseases, but there's really no standard of care for health. And this standard of care for health really needs to address your cellular health, how well your cells are making energy, how well your cells are detoxing from the energy that's made, and also the exposures they have from the environment and from the gut. In my parlance, this word is actually a cool word. It's called the holobiont, H-O-L-O-B-I-O-N-T. And this is like your holo organism. You can think of it as like, you're not just made up of, of cells. And you're also made up of microorganisms. You're made up of, of hormones, of cytokines, of chemicals. And you're also made up of the exposures that you have in your environment. And that can be from your water that you're drinking, the air that you're breathing, the environment around you, the, electronic, the electromagnetic fields that surround you as well. All of this is now sort of the universal common denominators that all interacts with your cells. And so, and how that works, we can actually measure. And by measuring those kinds of what we call metabolites or things that are the breakdown products from all those different exposures, you can actually get a sense of how healthy the, the whole system is as a whole. And then you can optimize at that level. And when you do that, everything above that, every single level above that works better. And that's everything from your potential diseases uh, to your, your potential um, your potential um, resilience overall from sickness and from infection as well. So if you look at that ground level, everything becomes easier when you do it. And so this is true prevention. It's not reactive medicine. It's actually true preventative medicine. And oftentimes if you're doing this kind of work, you can prevent downstream effects of multiple different types of things, you know, 10, 20 years in the future. Thank you for that explanation. So let, let's see if we can unpack this a little bit and bring it to, um, even further to, to, to the audience. So sure. clear, very clear that everything begins at the cell level, you know, the cells obviously are the foundation, you know, and everything spans from that. If we zoom out from that and we talk to an individual, you know, a father, a mother, and a family, sure. Uh, where do they start? Where is their starting point for them on a given day to day, um, in their day-to-day -day life. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, so what it comes down to it is that we are building up junk as we get older, right? It's, not, it's, it's impossible for us to be clean in an environment that has unnatural sunlight or has unnatural lighting. It has uh, toxic water, toxic uh, fumes in your environment. It's very difficult. So, you know, as we get older, these things build up and build up and start, we, we start creating symptoms. We start having symptoms. We start having issues. And um, this stuff happens typically slowly. So it's not like one day you're healthy, the next day you don't feel well. It's typically a, a progression as people are going through. And then all of a sudden they look, they look back in the rear of your mirror, like, holy crap, I haven't felt good in months or years or, or even decades. Right. And so the goal really is to start off and saying, what are the simple things that we can do, you know, regardless of what it might look like to start really working on optimizing our health. And, and, you know, in my world, that is sort of twofold. The first way is for everybody really to think about how well you can optimize your environment, right? So this is your water, your food, your, uh, your air, um, and your relationships, because you can have toxic relationships too, of course, as we all know. And so if that doesn't take any money per se, but that takes a lot of effort, right? Because you have to think about how you're going to do all these things and, and how you're going to put this kind of together for yourself. And so what I typically end up doing for my clients in general is looking at the data, looking at how well their cells are functioning, um, looking at, it's called metabolomic data. This is data looking at how your metabolism is working, how well your cells are working, how well your, is your gut optimized? Are you making the neurotransmitters in your brain to help you so you can actually think and you can actually recover and you can actually sleep and everything else? And so if you take sort of the simple things in quotes, diet, lifestyle, exposures, and you pair that with a way to optimize looking at those foundational biomarkers, it's much easier for people to go like, okay, now I know why I have to do X, Y, Z to truly work on my health and, and not just do one thing or try one thing and then stop because it's not working for a couple of days. And that's common for people. Like they start feeling bad. They start taking things out of their diet or they start trying to get more sunshine or you know, these are all relatively good things, but oftentimes they don't last because they're not really looking at it from a, from a foundational and a holistic perspective. So with the people that I work with and the whole framework of health optimization, medicine, and practices, let's set disease aside, let's set the symptoms aside and just optimize health right now. And so that you can really focus on that. And then everything else tends to get better over time. And you can address those things specifically over time if you need to, but the, the initial part is just working on that foundation. So pairing sort of the simple things in quotes with data is really the best way to go for most people, unless they're truly motivated and they can say, you know what? I really want to optimize my health. And then we can say, hey, look, these are the things that you probably need to do, the things I described it. Optimize, you know, look at all your exposures, look at your diet, look at your lifestyle, and truly try to dial those in as best you can and see how you feel and then go from there. So I, I have a question along the lines of that. So is it fair to say, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. So one of the things that, one of the popular terms these days, right? Again, you know, we live in exciting times. We have so much information that's available to us and, uh, we do have the responsibility, of course, of read it carefully because, uh, you know, I'm not an expert. You are an expert in your field. I'm kind of a person that's kind of dabbling on a lot of different things. There's mm -hmm. this term, the senescent cells. Yeah. Right. Um, is it fair to say that if I start in a, you know, person A, you know, I want to I want to start optimizing my health through the process that you just described. Okay, I am going to look at the quality of the water that I drink. I'm going to look at the quality of the food that I drink. I'm going to get some lab work to see that metabolomic data that you that you mentioned, right? Right. Uh, assuming that we're going to talk, you know, about later on about you know part of that data is, is the health of the gut biome, 
right? And I'm gonna look at the quality of my air. You're gonna mold is a big problem for a lot of people, right? So you have all, all these various things, lifestyle, you know, how um, sedentary you are. And then, like you said, relationships, and that could be toxic or non-toxic, or it could be just relationships at work, you know, stressful uh, relationships. Is it fair to say that if I engage in this practice, that part of what happens as a byproduct is, is there's a pruning, if you will, of these senescent cells? Well, I mean, the idea with senescent cells, just to kind of give a quick overview of those, is that these are cells that accumulate in our body as we get older. They're all the, otherwise known as zombie cells. And they're called that because they don't divide anymore and they don't really perform a metabolic function anymore. But what they do is cause inflammation and they have a significant correlation with degeneration, cancer, inflammation, death, you know, those kinds of things, which is, you know, the aging in quotes process, right? So senescent cells um, are really building up because of inflammation, okay? And so if we can decrease inflammation in the system, hypothetically, we can also decrease the number that are accumulating and help potentially some of these senescent cells actually regenerate themselves and actually go back into being normal, healthy cells as well. Now, you know, nobody knows for sure, at least in the practice that I've that I'm doing because we haven't done those kinds of studies. Um, but we do know that certain lifestyle measures will decrease senescent cell populations like exercise, for example, and fasting will help with senescent cells. And so there's certain things that we do know that can help decrease that load. And so when you're looking at health in general and how people are working and doing the things that they're doing in general, we're overfed all the time, right? We're not taking breaks from eating um, and we're under-exercised and we're under-muscled, right? So those are the the, the kind of the two and a half th or three things under-exercised and under-muscled. Most people think that, especially, you know, unfortunately women that think that they just need to do cardio all the time, but like, it's really important to have muscle mass too. So we're underfed, over, excuse me, overfed and under-muscled. And so this leads to a whole host of issues, um, everything from the senescent cells that we're describing to, to mitochondrial dysfunction, to any number of things like muscle wasting as we get older and everything else. So I think that if you're looking at sort of high level, you know, we're, we're eating too much and we're not we're not strong enough, right? And so if we can work on those kinds of things right there, like we can see a lot of benefits without even doing lab testing in a lot of people too. But senescent cells are just a byproduct of the, the things that we're describing of, of, of having a standard American diet, of being overfed, of being undermuscled in general. But these are things that you, there's things that you can do about these things. Excellent. So you, you pointed, you pointed there's something that is very, that I'm very curious about and that I've been reading a lot about lately, which is inflammation. And by inflammation, we're talking about chronic inflammation, not the inflammation that happens when you twist your toe or break an ankle or something like that, which is a positive type of inflammation to protect you from doing any, any, any further damage. We're talking about the inflammation that occurs inside, you know, around the organs and so forth. Uh, one of the, I, I follow uh, some of the work from Dr. Robert Lustig, I think he's also at UCSF, which is where you used to be. Um, he has a number of YouTube videos that talk about sugar uh, and, and the role of sugar in the human body and how much inflammation havoc sugar um, wreaks in the human body. I, I'm going to say something. I'd like you to correct me, you know, if I'm wrong and expand on it. Is it then 
safe to say that, you know, sugar or, you know, refined sugar, talking about not necessarily the natural sugars that occur in fruits and vegetables, you know, in, in foods, is a, is something that could be considered toxic because of the amount of inflammation that it actually wreaks in the body? Yeah. I mean, sugar is, you know, culprit number one for most people, uh, especially refined sugar. It causes a significant amount of inflammation and is ad- as addictive as cocaine. So there's you go. I mean, back in you know, a sort of evolutionarily, there are very few places where we get refined sugar. I mean, there are actually no places, right? The only kind of sugar that we would get in higher quantities would be honey uh, from a tree, for example, or maple syrup. Like these are things that were, were refined over time. But in general, we know honey has got a lot of amazing health benefits too, as does maple syrup if you get it in unrefined ways. But yeah, so sugar is sort of culprit number one. And so when I have my own clients that I'm working with, it's the first thing that I talk about is like, is no refined sugar is because like across the board, there really is nobody that feels better eating refined sugar than not. Now, if you're young, you may not see much of a difference. You know, with my kids that are relatively young, I see them eat refined sugar. They get a little hyper, they get a little tired and then they're fine. Right. But as you get to be an adult, um, you have a much more significant uh, response to refined sugar. It increases your insulin response. So insulin is the hormone in your body that gets released when you have sugar or eat sugar or complex carbohydrates, et cetera. And that insulin spike is, is basically directly related to inflammation. So the more that insulin spikes, the higher that your inflammation levels go and the more damage that causes over time. And then of course, the more insulin that needs to spike over time, the less the, the part of the body, the pancreas that makes insulin is going to be able to do that. And then that's when you get insulin resistance. That's when you get diabetes and you start giving people more insulin. Um, and insulin is a, is a good hormone. It, it's really important for growth. It's, it's an anabolic hormone, but it's also something that, can, that has a high risk of causing issues like cancer over the long term if it's, if it's used in high quantities as well. So it's and people with diabetes have higher rates of cancer, for example, right? So um, that's why if you can get somebody's diabetes under control or reverse it, like their cancer risk goes down dramatically, for example. That's fantastic. So we can see then that, or at least in my eyes, I have learned to see and to try to avoid, and this is in, in part thanks to you. You, know, you took care of my, my, my gut health and my son and my daughter, which I'm always grateful for. But it made a huge difference for me to become more of an observer of some of the things that I was trying to eat and how present is sugar and pretty much things that you would never think that have sugar, right? So what else is out there that is toxic? You know, toxicity seems to be, a big problem uh, in, in today's day and age. And I think most people don't even realize uh, that there are things that are considered toxic for the body because it's just everyday life. Well, what else is out there that we should, we should know about? Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that there's a list of about, you know, over a thousand to 10,000 things out there that are quite toxic for us. But in general, when it comes to food, I certainly think that sugar is number one. Uh, number two is going to be processed foods. So, excuse me, this is foods that typically have more than four to five ingredients in them. If you're at the grocery store, it's typically anything in the middle aisles as opposed to things on the outside aisles that need to be kept fresh. Anything that has an expiration date 
um, is typically something that's process as opposed to something that doesn't have an expiration date or shouldn't like eggs, for example, like eggs have an expiration date. Sure. But like, um, they, but it's, you know, what I, what I mean by that is like they have something on the label, like that, like it's a package and has an expiration date as opposed to like, you know, things that would go bad on their own, like, like eggs or fish or meat or something like that. So in general, processed foods, um, also when they're kind of stripped out of their natural kinds of products and put into other kinds of refined products or processed will have significant more difficulty being processed by the body in various types of ways. And so refined sugars and then processed foods. And then you look at things like seed oils, for example, like your vegetable oils, uh, peanut oil, soy, um, uh, what other the other the other kinds of uh, oils out there the, the vegetables that you'll find in a lot of foods these tend to be very toxic too and cause inflammation when they're uh, because these oils are very highly oxidized which means when they're uh, when they're um, when the heat gets to them they tend to cause a significant amount of inflammation in the body so and, and then there's also refined grains and I talk about um, dairy and I talk about lectins these are other categories that tend to be reactive for a lot of people um, but it's 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 a lot, you know, I know that uh, unfortunately dairy is something that many of us thought was very good for us for many years, but really isn't. And, and there's really very little reason to be eating dairy unless you grew up on a farm and all of your generations before you grew up on farms. Most of us have some, some sort of dairy sensitivity, um, gluten being the same thing. Gluten is, is something that's relatively low in certain types of uh, bread products and wheat products in Europe and much, much higher in the United States and also uh, genetically modified in many of our crops. And so GMOs is another one, right? So that's another area that you want to be careful of. And when they're adding in different types of genes into plants to keep them from getting eaten by bugs. So glyphosate would be the biggest one there. So chemical additives is really an important one and dyes as well. Like, so you red number seven and yellow number nine or whatever they are. Like those are also you know, really bad for us too. So, I mean, I guess the list goes on in general, but trying to get whole foods, the things on the outside of the grocery store, um, things that you, your grandmother or great grandmother would eat back in Panama, for example, and that's really what you want to be eating for the most part. So this is this is a big problem, Scott, because I I, I talk to folks about this. Like on one hand, you have, and again, anything that I say, please keep me honest, right? So human beings are, are one of the very few, if not the only one, of the species out there that has decided that we can just eat anything. It doesn't matter, right? You know, for whatever those reasons. Or golden retrievers. Eating. Just kidding. <laughs> it's, or, well, yeah, they, they even eat things that are not food. Right? Exactly. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we, we have concluded that if it grows on the, in the ground, then it should be edible, right? And, and then, of course, we've processed, like you said, processed foods and so forth. So we, we have this generational baggage, if you will, of just eat whatever and not only eat whatever, but you got to eat three times a day, right? Because you have to have the three meals. Um, and to go from that kind of thinking to, you know what, there's a lot of stuff in my diet that is just not good for me. Dairy being one of them. You know, I, I felt an experience when I stopped eating dairy immediately, a difference in me mm -hmm. and how, you know, and, and how tired I was and so forth. Just my overall health improved the moment I stopped. But my overall health also improved when I started fasting. Mm -hmm. So it's not only that we have to not eat everything that we're told is supposed to be good for us, but 
we gotta also eat less because this whole idea of eating, you know, every 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 six to eight hours, it seems to be every two hours not, is what we were told. Yeah, every two, every two hours, right? Grazing like cows, right? Well, <laughs> there you go. You have you know patients and clients that come to you for this. How do we how do we address that? Because you're we're, we're basically saying that you have to completely reevaluate what your relationship with food right. in all aspects. So what do you tell, how do you, how do you convey this message? And, you know, what is the secret to success for people to actually make a change? Is mm-hmm. this something that could be taught or do people need to have a scare for their life and then change happens? Well, the scare is certainly sometimes a conducive way for people to change. Of course, um, you don't want that to be the case but a pandemic was helpful for people. So I had a lot of people that would come to me and like when they found out if they were obese, if they had, if they had insulin resistance, if they had metabolic syndrome, that they were like some ridiculous number of percentage higher risk of dying from COVID. That was helpful. <laughs> so yeah. in the sense that like, oh shit, I better get my act together. Or I'm going to die, right? So there was a significant increase in my practice at that point of sort of fear-based related uh, optimization. Now that's petered out over the last couple of years. And now it's more people that are really interested in optimizing their health. Oftentimes they've gotten to a certain point where they're starting to have symptoms, where they're starting to have brain fog, where they're starting to have more fatigue. They're starting to have difficulty with their relationships or they're getting sick more, or they're worried about continuing to maintain at a high level at a certain age, 50, 60, or even 70. I've, I, earlier today, I was speaking to somebody who turns 78 in a couple of days. It's refusing to uh, to, to slow down. Right. And so, you know, these kinds of people. And so you, and he's been working on his health for 30 years to keep him at the top of his game and he has the money to do it. So, but what it comes down to Raphael, at least in my experience is that a conversation is usually not enough. They typically need to see data that gives them the, Oh my, if I don't do something about this now, something bad is going to happen. And so, or getting some inclination that if they don't change the way things are going, they're not going to feel better anytime soon. So that's when laboratory analysis is really helpful. And this is where you can look at somebody's gut microbiota and can see how toxic they are. They can see that you can have a leaky gut there, for example, and, and leaking in various things that are causing inflammation and toxicity. And you can look, if you fix this, you're, you're going to start being able to think better. Like if you don't, it's going to get worse. So if you can show people the data and show them that if they do these things, that they're going to feel better. It may not happen overnight. And in fact, most of the time it doesn't. Optimizing your health doesn't happen overnight. If you've taken 40 or 50 years to get to where you are, you can't expect that tomorrow, once you start changing things, that you're going to feel better. But what you can feel and what you can see is that you can see things change over time. So what I usually tell people is like, look, you can do this yourself. You can just try to optimize your health and change your diet. But I really do think that if we look at some data give you some real understanding of what's happening underneath the hood, then from there, you're going to be able to take it to the next level and truly commit to doing something to optimizing your health. And as I described, it's not something that happens overnight. It does take time for people to see these changes. But if you pair data with lifestyle, dietary, exercise interventions, you can really see a difference in people. And it it really signs them on to be a part of the process to be really engaged in how they can truly change. But you're right, Raphael, it's not easy for a lot of people. It can be very difficult for them to make these changes and they have to be ready. 
no matter what I tell people, I can't force them to change their diet. I can't force them to take supplements if that's what they need. And so, you know, personally, I'm not going to work with people that I'm forcing to do anything. They have to be engaged and ready to make those changes. And I'm very upfront with people as I do that. But I know not everybody's going to be ready to work with me because I'm, I'm going to really expect a lot of, from them to be able to do the things that, you know, we're talking about, but there are simple things that you can do, right? You can, I mean, if you're not ready to take those big jumps, you can stop eating pizza. You can stop drinking alcohol. And we didn't talk about alcohol, but alcohol is a big one, right? Um, so you can start drinking water that's not from your tap and, you know, getting filtered water or something. You can do, you can do small things uh, and they, or you can even start, Hey, let's, let's start with fasting and let's see what that looks like instead of eating for 18 hours a day, let me eat for 10 and see how I feel. And I'll, I'll cut that window from, so I'll start at 10 o'clock in the morning and I'll finish at eight o'clock, right? That's 10 hours. Can I do that every day instead of eating from seven o'clock in the morning when I wake up until 10 o'clock in the evening when I go to bed or have my late, late night snack at 1230 in the evening or whatever, right? So there's little things that you can do along the way, but I truly feel like for most people, it's really nice to have a quarterback with you so that you can kind of work on this stuff. And, and it doesn't have to happen overnight, but certainly working with somebody and, and working on your goals and, and having the data can be very, very helpful. So you mentioned a couple of things there. Uh, you mentioned leaky gut, you know, and gut biome, right? And that is something that has been around. People have been talking about this for, um, for quite some time. I've talked to people on, on on both ends of that spectrum. On one end is, it's not a thing. The other end is, it's the cause of all bad things. So <laughs> everything that's wrong with you is because you have a leaky gut. Don't matter. You have a hangnail up, oh, leaky gut. You know, so can, can, you, can you expand a little bit of that and then maybe weave, weave into the gut biome health? Yeah, so the leaky gut, what that means basically is that, so our gut, wall itself is made up of one cell thickness. So there's only one cell there. It's the thickness of the gut. And then you have mucus, which protects the gut lining. And then inside that you have immune cells. You know, so you think about the gut, the gut is basically outside of your body. So you take food in and what the gut is trying to do is keep things out of the body that shouldn't get into the body. And it's trying to break down your foods, your proteins, your carbohydrates, your fats into small enough pieces that it actually gets, gets, and it can be used by the rest of the body. And so what happens when you have a leaky gut is that either the mucosal layer or the, the colon lining or the gut lining is compromised in some way. And so instead of keeping things out that shouldn't get out or shouldn't come into the body, you have things getting into the body that shouldn't come in. So this could be proteins that are too large, or they could be fats that are not digested well, or it could be um, it, it can be related to um, byproducts of the bacteria that are in there that are getting to the system that shouldn't. And what, what happens is this can, and then that's called endotoxins. These are toxins that can come from the bacteria itself. And so what can happen as a result of that is that you get immune system activation and you, as a result of that, your blood brain barrier gets leaky sometimes. So the blood brain barrier is what prevents things from getting into your brain. So that can get leaky and things can go there. And so there's a significant interaction between the gut, the microbiota in your gut and the brain. And so it's not just your gut brain axis, it's your gut microbiota brain all working together. And so people that have brain fog and fatigue, oftentimes they have a leaky gut and they're leaky, they have a leaky brain as well. And when you, you have a lot of inflammation in the system, 
It's just a self-perpetuating cycle where you start getting more inflammation in the gut, more inflammation in the brain, and it just continues and continues. And so leaky guts is the cause of it is, is, is sort of multifactorial. It could be anything from bacterial overgrowth where you have too much bacteria in the, in the small, in the large and the small intestine. The small intestine is not supposed to have a lot of gut bacteria, but it can get overgrown from the large intestine. And so leaky gut can be because, can be because of that specifically. It also can be because of certain types of um, organisms that can cause the pathology, certain types of bacteria or viruses or fungus themselves. <clears throat> it can also be from systemic infection. So I see a lot of, uh, a lot of leaky gut post-COVID, for example, or post-severe infection. You can get leaky gut as a result of that. Um, you can get leaky gut because of toxins in the environment that you're, that you're exposed to, um, you can get leaky gut from other types of uh, toxins that you're injected with, lots of different ways that they can get into the body. But if there's inflammation in the system, it can cause inflammation in the gut. If there's inflammation in the gut, it can cause leaky gut and it can cause inflammation in the system. Interesting. So what, one last topic before we get into switch gears a little bit here. Um, you mentioned alcohol. That's another one that's a, a big one. And there's so much marketing and so much pressure actually social pressure i i, I interviewed uh, hillary phelps last week who, who who goes around the country talking about alcoholism and addiction mm -hmm. and she was she was mentioning some interesting things about how in in the case of women you know there's this whole this whole culture of drink to feel better right um and a glass of wine at the end of the day yes exactly while the kids are running around kind of thing sure exactly so if you go back into the published, published data, say 40, 50 years ago, and you compare it to what it is now, we've gone through a spectrum of, well, yeah, you know, excess alcohol is bad. Everybody knows that. That, that, was, that was necessarily never in question by anyone with reason. But there was a time where it's like, well, you know, if you have one glass of wine, it's, it's good for you as long as it's just one. And now at least some of the stuff that I've, read that has come out recently says there is no amount of alcohol that is good for you. In fact, that is all detrimental. Where do you stand on that based on your experience and what you've seen working with patients? Yeah. So <laughs> it's a, it's a kind of a tough question to answer in gray. I mean, in, in general, I say no, no amount of alcohol is probably good for anybody. Now, if you have it on occasion, probably fine. Um, but we, they did some studies that looked at like just very minimal amounts of alcohol per week, and it did show brain shrinkage. Uh, we know that alcohol also wrecks people's sleep if they drink too close to bedtime. We know alcohol causes inflammation. It causes uh, liver stress. I mean, look, if you're going to drink every once in a while, I think it's probably okay. But the challenge with alcohol is that overall it's a poison. It's a poison to the system and it does cause badness in general. So I'm of the vein that most people should not be drinking most of the time. Now on special occasions um, with lots of detox protocols and got a good hydration and not too close to sleep, it's fine. you know. But um, I think in general, we've been read a very significant story that's been wrong. Like resveratrol and wine is, it's a bunch of bullshit, malarkey, whatever, right? So we know that there's resveratrol in wine, um, but to get enough resveratrol to potentially have an effect, you need to drink like cases of it, right? And as a result of that, you know, you'd be an alcoholic and that's not good either. So I've, you know, one of the things I see most in the hospital, which I still work at part-time, is, is alcohol-induced issues. I see people, I see kids dying of liver failure at 28 years old. I see people with, with any number of, of issues, you know, dementia. Um, they have 
They have uh, neuropathy. They can't walk anymore. They have, uh, they've ruined all their relationships, right? So alcohol is an addictive, addictive su- substance. So it's and not everybody's going to get addicted to alcohol. Um, and um, it's not something that we think of as a, as a poison, but it certainly is, unfortunately. And, and it's a legal one, right? So, I mean, do I want to go back to prohibition where alcohol is illegal? No, because I think that it's not going to solve the problem. I think it's just a better understanding and a better culture out there to show that how alcohol is really a detrimental to our system. It kills nerves. It kills brain cells. Um, it gives you high risk for cancers. It, it's it's going to kill your liver over time. And and it's, it's, it's a significant issue. So, um, there are a lot of better ways to relax and, 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 and alcohol is really not the way that I would recommend for most people. Um, there are, there's meditation, there's, uh, there's exercise. There are supplements that help with increasing GABA, for example, GABA is a neurotransmitter in our body that helps with relaxation. There is drinking tea. There is having a nice conversation with your spouse. I mean, there's lots of different ways to relax, but yeah, on occasion, alcohol, fine. My wife drinks wine every once in a while. That's totally fine, right? Um, but I think that it, unfortunately, it's it's not healthy. There's nothing healthy about it. Wonderful. So tell me, you you mentioned switching gears here and just kind of bringing everything to to a place of of putting it all together. One of the things that I always talk about is if how do you feel. And people, people inevitably will have an answer. And my question, follow-up question is, well, is that your best? Could you feel better? And most people have an answer. Yeah, when I was younger. And some people actually don't. It's like, no, no, no. This is, I work out. I do this. I do this. I fast. There's, there's no way for me to feel better. And my argument always is back is you can always do something to feel a little bit better, right? And that something is basically a process, right? You know, and you you've created a process that you follow. You mentioned in the beginning of of uh, of the conversation with your mentor this process where by which you are observing what's going on at the cellular level through prevention. So, where can the average person begin? So first of all, can I talk about that process? You know, your whole home uh, process, and then. Where can we get started in a way that we're going to see some results that are going to help us feel better? I always tell people, if you want to feel better, you have to do better, right? So what can we do better? We talked already about the diet, but is there anything else that could be done to then start feeling better? And what is the expectation there? You know, how long does it take to actually feel better? There's a lot of ways to unpack that question. I think it depends on the person, honestly, but in general, we are not only overfed and under-muscled, we're also overstressed. So I think one of the major ways that I start working with people is try to start working on getting them out of fight or flight mode. And so getting them into more of what's called a parasympathetic rest and digest mode. And so there's lots of different ways to do that. Uh, meditation is a nice way to do that, but it's not something that a lot of people can start off with right away uh, because it's, but it's also, I think, an interesting conversation to say, do you believe everything you think? Do you? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and and what kind of yeah, and what kind of stories are you creating that have created the way that things are for you now? And so 
it's a psychological aspect of things. And so some people really need to start with the psychological. Some people really need to really to reframe the, their relationships to themselves, to their selves, uh, to their emotions, to their thoughts. And they can do that in a lot of different ways. Meditation is a great way to do that. Other people have to start thinking about their relationships to food, uh, to how they are thinking about how food, how they're eating food. Are they eating food as a, as a comfort measure? Are they eating food as a way to optimize their health? Most likely it's the former and not the latter, right? So, but if, and of course things are gray areas all the time as well. So it's not like everything's always a zero sum game here, but I think when I, when I work with people, they're usually ready to do the whole, the whole shebang. We're looking at optimizing their health. So we're looking at diet, lifestyle, supplementation, and using data to drive all of that. And I really, too, I really truly feel that if you're going to foundationally optimize your health, that's what's required. You can certainly do things on your own. You can start doing some intermittent fasting. You can start working on cleaning up your diet. You can start working, cleaning up your exposures your, uh, from the environment and your relationships. And these are things that you can do. But oftentimes it's difficult to continue to maintain a motivation to do these things without having a quarterback alongside and also some data to drive you. Now, I, I mean, I grew up with the son of a chiropractor who was very good at using chiropractic as a way to optimize people's health, often saying that the body is going to heal itself if given the tools. And I, and I completely agree with that. But I also think that the next step on that evolution is not just adjustment, conversation, and supplementation. It's looking at the data at the same time and being able to use that data in a very intentional way to help people along that process. You've mentioned data a number of times throughout the conversation, which of course I'm an engineer, so I'm all about data, but just to, for the, for the, for the folks listening, what kind of cadence are we talking about here? You know, is this something that we go, let's say I wanted to come see you. We collect a bunch of data. We make some changes. When do we do this again? Is it once a year? Like, like, uh, uh, a healthy checkup? Is it more often than that? Less often? How do you uh, unpack mm -hmm. that? So it depends on the person, but usually it's every six months for the first year. And then after that, potentially uh, every year, depending on how things are looking, at least for some of the data, when it comes to the gut, the GI system, the gut is a little bit more challenging and it takes longer sometimes, but it also takes more testing in a shorter kind of cadence to make sure that we're making the changes we want to see. It also depends on how long you've had X, Y, Z. So like if you're relatively young and you have gut issues, it may not very, be very long until you see significant benefit. But if you're older and you've had gut issues for 20, 30 years, it may take longer and it may take more testing over a shorter period of time. So maybe every three months initially to see what's happening, what we need to modify and change and optimize so that we continue to make the progress that we're making. And then you look at hormones, for example, then if you're looking at hormones and trying to optimize those, that could be something you want to check every three or six months, depending on how old you are and what's being shifted or optimized in that capacity. The one thing I should also say about the whole framework, Raphael, is that we're not just trying to optimize you to be the best that you can be for your age. We're trying to optimize you so that you can be the best that you can be from the optimal age that we, uh, we are alive, which is between 21 and 30 years of age. That's when we were the most optimized for procreation, for fighting the wars, as we all know. Like That's when we're most resilient. So the whole framework that I use is based on a framework, based on the idea that we're trying to bring your levels of vitamins, minerals, nutrients, and hormones back to the levels when you were truly optimized. Uh, this is when you were 21 to 30 years of age. When you go to your regular doctor, we do most functional lab testing even, 
you'll get a range of normals. That's usually somewhere the range is between 18 and 64 years of age normal. So this is I mean, if 18 or 64. So the normal range is, is normalized within that group of people. But do you want to be optimized to be levels between that level? If you're 55 years of age, do you want to have the levels of vitamins, minerals, nutrients, and hormones of a 55-year-old? No, you want to have the levels between 21 and 30 because that's how you're going to stay as optimized and as at as youthful as possible, right? So that's that's the idea with the whole practice. It's not just just look at these things and normalize them to levels between 18 and 65. No, it's between 21 and 30 years of age. This is great. Well, I have a lot more questions, but we're, we're out of time. So maybe, maybe you can come back in the future and we'll discuss some of the other topics. Uh, where can people find your information, Scott? Sure. So happy to Raphael. I mean, I know that you want to get a short bite here for people. And so, I mean, what it comes down to for me, you can find me a couple of different places. You can find me on Instagram. If you guys go there, it's at Dr. Scott Schur. I have my health optimization medicine practice, which is at home-fs, home excuse me, home-sf.co. You can also just Google my name, Dr. Scott Schur. You can find all the podcasts and, and lectures that I've done on this topic and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And uh, yeah, those are the places to start, I would say. And then, and, yeah. And you have your own podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah. My, and my company, it's called Smarter Not Harder. Uh, we are the Smarter Not Harder podcast. That's also the name of my company. We make products that are related to mitochondrial optimization, focus, anxiety, sleep, those kinds of things. And so we have our own podcast where you can listen to me and a a, a roundabout, we have a round robin of hosts that are that are interviewing awesome guests around the world on various topics as well. Fantastic. Well, Scott, thank you very much for your time and we'll be talking soon. Okay. Sounds good, Raphael. Till next time. <laughs>